Good morning. Some of you are in the sun and can enjoy it, and some of you are just cold. <laughs> Today I want to talk about cultivating gratitude amid challenges. Gratitude amid challenges. My wife, Tabitha, and many of you, like her, will be thankful for many opportunities. And let me just talk about her for a second. She's thankful for many opportunities that have been given to her. She's had a great education. She's worked at the American Embassy in London. She's held various positions in the workforce, including many in, in places of leadership. She has two amazing children and not one half bad husband. She's thankful that she has the right to own land. We actually have a little Miata. I gave her, it was a former student's hand-me-down from their dad, that's what we could afford. We bought the student as he graduated, their old Miata, for, a, for an anniversary gift, and next thing I knew, it was put in her name. It's not in mine. So I can't sell the thing. She's thankful that she can own property, that she gets to vote. Now, the, the truth is, only those who are ignorant of history, including recent history, don't appreciate some of the opportunities that women have. And yet, if you asked her, or any other, or many women at least, they know serious and varied challenges remain. Far too often, Negative assumptions about females persist. I just sat down with my daughter, for example, and some others and started asking questions to make sure I wasn't just guessing. Everything came up from assuming that, the, that women can't handle pressure, that they can't drive, that they are less intelligent. They deal with mansplaining on a regular basis, even when sometimes the guy talking knows less than they do about whatever it is. They just assume because they're men, they know better. Trust me, it's not pretty, but it still happens a lot. So here's the reason why I'm telling you this. Should Tabitha and other women in America, should they be thankful or frustrated? Should she be grateful or frustrated. You see, there is much for which to be grateful for. But if women draw attention to ongoing challenges, does that mean they're just complainers? Does that mean they're not grateful? Or might it be that we live in a fallen world and that requires people, including Christians or at least Christians, to tell the truth? And one of the remarkable things that we're going to see is that the scripture is clear. You can hold two truths at the same time. One can be the truth about the reality of problems. And the other can point to the truth of God's gifts. The question is, do we have the courage and patience to be able to recognize both? So first, I want to tell you, don't pick between lament and joy. Don't pick between lament and joy. We live in a time, 
and a culture, including the church, that's constantly asking us to make choices about certain things. And I want you to know that sometimes you should not make a choice. And if you're clever and you're actually listening right now, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that by not making a choice, that is a, yes, a choice. But dichotomies and tensions are constantly before us, and we're asked to pick between them, between the individual and the community, between grace and effort, between piety and cultural engagement, between love and justice, between lament and gratitude. And I want us today to think about how do you cultivate gratitude and joy, but do so in light of what I would call biblical realism. You see, biblical gratitude and joy is cultivated, and this is key, not by ignoring the bad, but by making sure your vision is not reduced to a single truth. This is important because it will help you resist two pressures. Some people are telling Christians that they're supposed to be joyful and filled with gratitude, but it seems that the way they want you to experience that is by ignoring the negatives. Joy, in this case, seems to be sought at the expense of an honest or realistic assessment of the pain, the suffering, the injustice in this world. I'll let you use your imagination to think of times that's happened. On the other hand, others have become so aware about the pains and the hurts and the problems in this world that they worry that Christian expressions of joy and gratitude mean that Christians become naive at best or cold-hearted at worst. Sadly, each of these two sides can provide plenty of examples and evidence for their concerns. But what if I told you you shouldn't pick between lament and joy? What if I told you that as we experience or witness hardship and justice and suffering in this life, it is appropriate, in fact commanded, that we lament? And that such expressions of sadness, of sorrow, of anguish, are not signs of a lack of faith, but actually are expressions of faith. You, you get the idea, right? If you ever just pause and think about it, because people think, I don't know to ask God why, to say, you know, to, to express frustration. That's not really faithful. You don't express frustration. You don't ask questions. You don't lament to a God you don't think is there. No, as the psalmist cries, my God, my God, why? It's not a distant deity. This is his God, the Lord of the covenant, the God of Israel. This is my God. This is the Almighty who's made promises, who's declared to be good and trustworthy. What's going on? And so when there's the hurt, when there's the frustration, when there's the confusion, when you see atrocities and experience slights, we are to lament, believing that his presence and compassion and power, he alone can handle and absorb it. We can grow tired of one another's laments. He doesn't. 
He alone can handle it. He will not be overwhelmed by your raw expressions. But similarly, this is the God to whom we ultimately direct our gratitude and thanksgiving. And I was trying to think, how do I, how do I help you quickly so we don't spend the whole time on this? How do I help you understand, don't choose between lament and gratitude at the same time. And the best I could think of was this. Don't pick between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. Here's what I mean by that. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 23 confidently declares, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. These are expressions though, make sure you don't think this, that the lament is just during the sad times and the Lord is my shepherd is for the good times. It doesn't work that way. Confidence in God's kindness and provision is often discovered, and you know this, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Too often we're asked to pick and when we do, our laments turn into, our basic, they basically turn into hopeless despair or our gratitude turns into shallow cliché. Lament and gratitude, I, I don't know, I just made this up, but they're, they're mirroring concepts. Here's what I, they're, they're mirroring. It, they look at each other and they have this center that is the same. Each of them, lament and gratitude, both point to the same truth. You are dependent upon God. Whether things are hard, troubling, whatever, we lean on Him. We voice our fears and frustrations. We're dependent that He will make right the wrong, that He will heal the diseases, that He will reconcile the broken, that He will forgive the sins. But likewise, when a newborn is put into the warm embrace of her mother, when a scrumptious meal feeds the body and the laughter fills the soul, when injustice is corrected and when meaningful work is done, in all of this we express gratitude. It reminds us that God's the giver of all good gifts. Listen to the psalmist, lest we separate this. Here's another example from Psalm 31. He says, I will exalt and rejoice in your steadfast love. I'm going to exalt and rejoice in your steadfast love, watch this, because you have seen my affliction. He's going to rejoice not because there's no affliction, but because God sees, because God knows. No, he is present, as we'll see. A few years ago, a friend of mine spoke in chapel and has also written an article about this. And she talked about sometimes when her faith, when she's struggling, she is reminded, she's an African-American woman, and she is reminded of the faith of her grandmother's great-grandmother. You see, she tells the story of how when she was a slave and her daughters and and the family was ripped apart. 
And yet somehow in the midst of this, in the midst of the slavery and then the aftermath, somehow that family believed in God. And they would praise him. They could thank God. Now listen though, they could thank God not because slavery or treacherous treatment was good. It was often done at, at the hands, by the hands of people who claimed to be Christians. No, no, no. They praised God in spite of what was happening. They believed that God was good, that he was with them, that he could be praised, but not because the things were good, but because he was. The very one who laments is also the one who can praise and can express deep thanksgiving. You see, these Christians were honest brokers. And that brings me more directly to the call to cultivate gratitude and joy. Let's think about gratitude and joy for a minute. There's a cluster of biblical words related to the idea that I want to get at here. You could, you know, look up rejoice and praise and joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. Each of those words, if we had time, could be distinguished from others. But they're all really in the same theological and existential family. And for our purposes, each of these words point to the human creature's recognition that God is the great giver. As the Apostle Paul says, all things are from him, through him, and to him. Right? This truth is meant to provoke praise and admiration. Given in our limited time, I just want to read to you from Philippians 4 and make a few observations. Listen to this text. It's a text many of you know, but this comes from Philippians 4, verses 4 to 8. Paul says this, and he frames how you cultivate gratitude in the life of a believer. Here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness or reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses understanding, the kind of peace that can be experienced even in the midst of treachery, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Paul begins right out of the gates in what we call an imperative. Rejoice. It's less of a request. It's a command. Isn't that weird? To be commanded to rejoice. How can you be commanded to rejoice? There's, I will we'll let you try and figure this out. Here's your homework for today. There is a colleague of mine here, a good friend, who is allergic to shallow spirituality. And so he doesn't pray normally before classes, except normally when it's like a thunderstorm outside. And it's windy and wet. And then he will make sure he takes the time to pause and to offer prayer and thanksgiving to God. 
And the reason is, he wants to remind himself and the students that we do not just thank God in seasons of prosperity. God cares for us all, all the time, whether it is stormy outside or beautiful blue skies. And so Paul says to rejoice. Do you know where Paul is when he wrote this? He's in prison. How do you rejoice, though, without ignoring or lying about the genuine hardships in life? And I, I know I'm focusing on this. It's, honestly, it's because I see in evangelicalism a lot of happy, clappy, shallow spirituality. We need to be honest about the pain and the difficulties in this world. How do we do it and still rejoice? Paul's answer is as simple as it is transformative. Here's what he says. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, there's some debate about what near, what Paul has in mind when he says near here. Because you, it could be read, uh, sometimes they'll translate it, the Lord is at hand. It could be that he's talking about kind of nearness in time, like the Lord will be coming back at any time. He's near in time. Or it could be that he's talking about near in terms of like he's with you spatially. Is he near in time or near in space? And I think the answer is probably why would you pick between those? Right? As Gordon Fee argues, Paul is probably using what he calls an intentional double entendre. In other words, the Lord is at hand both in terms of time and space. Both things are things we should be mindful of. So when Paul adds that our gentleness, or as some will translate it, our reasonableness should be evident to all, here's the idea, and this is a good word for us right now in our time. Christians should not be people who panic. If the Lord is near, we don't panic. No, no, no. We should not be cruel people. We should not be easily angered people. Instead, we should be reasonable. One might even say gentle. Can you imagine? Recognizing the promise that the Lord is near, Paul encourages us not to be anxious. Do not be anxious. Why? Not because you're going to escape the difficulty. Not because everything's going to work out and we know how it's all going to work out in the, in the coming days. No, we can cease to be anxious because the infinite God is present. We can be confident because we're not orphans. We're not alone. No, we don't just give our requests to avoid, to a vague power, but to the Father of our Lord Jesus who has given us his spirit. And so we will make our, make our request to him. How might, and here's the challenge for today, how might our lives be changed if we just chewed on simple promises like the Lord is near? Right? To chew on that like a, like a cow chews on the cud. Right? When we, think of, when we think about this idea of meditating on Scripture, it can sound super spiritual and it's just like, no, those are for the super saints. And we make it sound too sophisticated and difficult. Meditating on Scripture just means this. You take a phrase like the Lord is near 
and just repeat it through your day. Think about it. Let it soak deep into your soul. Let it run over you like oil running down Aaron's beard. Because these truths take a while to, to get deep into our souls. And this then provides the, what Paul calls the peace of God that's beyond our understanding. He says, because he's going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The phrase, if any of us, you know, we've been reading the Bible for a while, or you've been in sermons, you hear, in Christ Jesus, we just kind of, our eyes move past it quickly. But for Paul, it's not something you move past. The only reason that we can claim peace amid the difficulty is because of the Messiah. Because of the Messiah. So Paul to the Thessalonians says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now what he's talking about, what's his will, is that we will sense he is near, and so we will pray without ceasing. That we will know he is near, and so we can rejoice always. No matter the circumstances. I'll say it again, please do not listen to leaders, including Christian leaders, who basically encourage you to look at terrible events and pain and call it good. It's not good. That's not what Paul is saying here. No, the good, the confidence, the rejoicing is not the circumstances. But it's about God's faithfulness and his presence. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The cross does not look promising. But you can't understand the cross without having an honest assessment of all the wickedness associated with it coming to pass. Christians are remarkable and different because they're encouraged to resist choosing between the assessment of hardships and hopeful confidence in God. Again, he's in prison. Listen to how Lynn Kolick, she's a great New Testament scholar, she says this, The source of the Philippians' joy is participating in God's unfolding story of redemption. And then she adds, This joy comes not from achievement. The joy is not just from achievement, but from abiding with God no matter what. So now let me talk about remember, look, and identify briefly. You see, Paul reflects a biblical pattern for how do you cultivate joy here. Three movements, three words. Remember, look, identify. Basically, he's saying, remember what God has done in salvation history. You go to the Exodus and onwards, they're constantly remembering. They're remembering the Exodus, that is God's deliverance, always precedes Sinai. His grace always is the context for commands. We always must remember. But Christians are not merely historians. We're not simply to remember. We're also to look. To look to the present. That God continues to be active in and among us and through us. He's at work. He's still working. But are we looking? 
We look as he brings the winds of salvation, as he changes your roommate who's been irritating, but you can tell they're trying a little bit harder. God is softening. God is working. We look not simply for God's power in a sunrise or stand in front of an ocean and sense his beauty, although that's true too. But we also look for signs of hope amid the ashes of his presence and kindness in unexpected places, not because he delights in pain and suffering, but because we have a sympathetic high priest. God is active, but it takes eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we don't simply remember what God has done, nor are we merely looking for what he's doing, but we also must identify things that remind us of God's character his work and his presence. Elsewhere, Paul says that we're to be steadfast in prayer. Listen to this. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Think about that. Watchful in prayer. The point is, if we're not watchful, we miss what's happening. It's like Daniel, as he, we, everyone knows, he prayed three times a day, but part of what he was doing, it says, was he was being thankful, looking and identifying things that represented God's presence and action so that he could be thankful. Tabitha and I lived in London for three years at a place called the Goodenough Trust. It's an old historic postgraduate residence, an incredible history. And we would have meals at these old wooden tables that were hand carved. And after a while, we eventually found out that if you looked at, one, at the legs on one leg of every table, if you looked carefully, you would find a hand carved little mouse. And if you weren't looking, you wouldn't see it. But actually, once you found it, and every table had one somewhere tucked away, and that little hand carved mouse would identify the person who made the table. It's like hundreds of years old, but if you knew what to look for. Well, Paul is telling us to cultivate thanksgiving by looking for the fingerprints of God's work. Paul says it this way, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's pleasing, whatever's commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, thank God for these things. You see, by identifying these things, we're reminded of our creator and sustainer. It helps us to push back against the, the despair with gratitude. Let me conclude. Let me conclude. Over the past 25 years, some of you who are psych majors may know this, there is a, a sub-discipline in psychology called positive psychology. The idea, the idea has been that psychology has been very good at diagnosing problems and mental challenges, but not very sufficient, not very, not very good at giving sufficient attention to what would be considered positive traits. And so they started to look for what, you, going back to Aristotle, what's the good life and how could you research that? And tons of the studies emerged. They started to study everything from quote-unquote happiness to forgiveness. But one area Robert Emmons at UC Davis and others focused on was gratitude. And Emmons actually happens to be a Christian. And he realized that few had actually studied this from a psychological perspective, the idea of gratitude. Could you actually see any empirical difference among those who cultivated gratitude in their lives. 
Shouldn't surprise us as Christians, they actually did find things. I want to read to you, because I can't take you into all of it, but listen to this. Quote, highly grateful people, as compared to their less grateful counterparts, tend to experience positive emotions more often, enjoy greater satisfaction with life and more hope, experience less depression, anxiety, and envy. They tend to score higher in pro-sociality and to be more empathic, forgiving and helpful, and supportive, listen to this, as well as less focused on materialistic pursuits. That's just in an academic journal. If you keep a gratitude journal for a month, you can actually measure changes of lower blood pressure, improved immune systems, people get more sleep and their energy levels go up. Pretty fascinating, huh? Now, as a Christian, there's some things I'd want to be cautious about, it, but it's interesting. But here's the point. Christians don't need positive psychology to tell us that gratitude is vital to the Christian life. We are people who are commanded and invited to rejoice, but here's the key. And here is the key, and it's not always this way in positive psych. No, we rejoice not because we ignore evils, not because we harden our hearts, and not because we withdraw from difficulties of pain and suffering. No, we rejoice because God is near. We rejoice and cultivate joy because we remember what God has done. We look for what he's doing. And we identify his presence and kindness and whatever is good and noble and just and peace-producing and worthy of praise. We give thanks to, the, to God for the young, brave girl who stands up to the bully. We thank God and express gratitude to the baker who delivers stunningly good sourdough bread. We're grateful to God for friendships and for those who are willing, what Jeremiah says, to defend the cause of the poor and the needy. We're grateful for acts of gentleness in a hostile world. We're grateful for a cool glass of water and for the warmth of the sun and for a well-built automobile. But most of all, we are a people who are grateful because we are confident of who God is because we see Christ and are filled with his spirit. And that means the wickedness, the sadness, the frustrations, all legitimately worthy of lament and action. But here's the thing. It also means that the laments are not all there is. You see, Christ did not simply die, but he rose and he will come again. Christ is with us. God is near. Please chew on that this week, my friends. Let me pray. Our God, you are near. Forgive us for when we live panic lives. Forgive us for when we choose either to lament because of the brokenness or when we choose to try and rejoice by ignoring the brokenness and when we don't hold the two together. Help us to be honest brokers about your world. To be honest when there is difficulty and to be honest when you are working in compassionate ways. Help us to see and to hear and to identify what you are doing. Lord, there are some here who need the courage to keep going, 
and to be grateful. And there are some here who need the courage to stop seeking gratefulness at the expense of an honest assessment of the world. Wherever we need courage, make it so. We pray in the name of our risen King. Amen.